Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints, Episode 9, Inquisitor. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today, we'll be taking our first foray into the High Middle Ages, the world of knights, castles, and gothic cathedrals, to meet one of the greatest, but today one of the least known, saints of an era with plenty of hallowed names, the preacher, martyr, and inquisitor, St. Peter of Verona. But before we start, wait a minute, I know what you're thinking. Did he really just say that this saint was an inquisitor. Yes, you heard it right. If you've received a standard modern education, and never looked into the subject for yourself, I imagine some alarm bells are already going off in your head. St. Peter of Verona, one of the best-loved saints of the 13th century, was an officer of the most misunderstood, and frankly, the most slandered, institution in the history of the Church, the Inquisition. Before we talk about Peter's life, I think I ought to clear up the nonsense we've all learned about the Inquisition itself. Modern culture paints the Inquisition as a kind of medieval Gestapo, kicking down doors, throwing the accused into dungeons, and torturing out confessions, only to burn innocent people at the stake on the slightest allegation of heresy, or alternatively, witchcraft, both being crimes that sound ridiculous to modern ears. This picture is so ubiquitous today that even many Catholics believe it without a second thought. Our mental image of the Inquisition is taught in schools and reinforced by books, movies, TV shows, video games, and so on, until most of us never consider it further. And it's not just a product of pop culture, either. I'm not surprised to find Inquisitors turned into mustache-twirling cartoon villains for the millionth time on trashy Netflix shows. But even some of the greatest literary minds in history, including one of my personal favorites, Dostoevsky, have also contributed to this myth. And that's exactly what the common view of the Inquisition is. A myth. According to real historians, who actually study the Inquisition, this nightmarish picture of secret police, torture chambers, and mass executions is a product of propaganda, rather than history. In the 16th and 17th centuries, English and Dutch Protestants fought a long series of wars against Catholic Spain. This being the age of the printing press, both sides published piles of propaganda to smear their enemies and rile up their own people. On the Protestant side, the English and Dutch invented a myth that historians now call La Leyenda Negra, 
the Black Legend. This is nothing less than the image I gave you earlier, of the horrors of the Inquisition, with its dank dungeons and kangaroo courts, tarring the name of the Catholic Church, and of Spanish Catholics most of all. The Black Legend proved so sensational that it was picked up and repeated by Protestant polemicists, Enlightenment atheists, and even liberal Catholics, down to the present day. It's a perfect weapon for anyone who wants to take a swing at the Catholic Church. Whenever you try to explain the enormously positive influence of the Church throughout history, in the arts, the sciences, education, law, philosophy, public morality, and so on, someone will inevitably ask, but what about the Inquisition? So, what about it? Writing the history of the Inquisition based on Anglo-Dutch war propaganda is like writing the history of the First World War based on the British tabloid press. If you attempted the latter, your account would be full of sensational stories about the Kaiser's pointy-helmed Huns skewering babies on bayonets as they burned their way through Belgium. If you felt like adding a visual aid, you might throw in that classic of American war propaganda, which somehow managed to appeal to people over the age of 12. A poster depicting the German as a gorilla carrying off a half-naked woman in one hand and wielding a bloody club in the other. Destroy this mad brute! Enlist! I think we can all see how unfathomably stupid you'd have to be to believe in that version of World War I today. And yet, that very same mistake of trusting malicious war propaganda has formed our understanding of the Inquisition. Modern historians, investigating the primary sources rather than relying on received wisdom, have now completely overturned the Black Legend. Meticulously reading through the secret documents of the tens of thousands of court cases, historians like Henry Kamen, William Monser, and Helen Rawlings have shown that the mainstream view of the Inquisition is an absurd parody of the truth. In early modern Spain, where the Inquisition was notoriously most powerful and best documented, historians have found that fewer than 2% of defendants tried by inquisitorial courts were executed. Compare that number to almost any other court system in Renaissance Europe, and you'll find that the Inquisition was among the most merciful. The same applies to torture. While every court system of the time employed torture, the laws of the Church placed severe restrictions on its use by the Inquisition, Again, modern historians estimate that only about 2% of all cases brought before the Inquisition involved torture. In the words of the historian Helen Rawlings, Inquisitors themselves were skeptical of the efficacy and validity of torture as a method of conviction, and so they rarely turned to it. As for the Dark Dungeons, the Inquisition ran the most humane prisons in Europe, so much so that, according to historian Thomas Madden, Spanish criminals were heard to commit blasphemy 
just so they could be transferred to the more comfortable prisons of the Inquisition. I can't resist pointing out here that the Monty Python sketch, where the Spanish Inquisition tortures an old lady by making her sit in a comfy chair, is ironically closer to the truth than most people's image of the Inquisition. Finally, there's the question of witch hunting, or rather, its almost total absence from the work of the Inquisition. While the rest of Renaissance Europe was in the grip of a witch craze, burning women suspected of black magic, Spain turned out to be the only country where witch hunting, rather than witchcraft, was prosecuted en masse by the authorities. Even more than a hundred years ago, the otherwise anti-Catholic historian Henry Ley admitted that this was due to the wisdom and firmness of the Inquisition. When tales about women turning people into toads and gallivanting around on broomsticks were everywhere, the Inquisitors were some of the only people in Europe to be skeptical. Subsequent research has only confirmed this fact, that the Inquisition was the first power in the age of the witch craze to take a stand against witch hunting. All this is to say that our stereotype of the Inquisition is far removed from reality. So, if Inquisitors didn't spend their time locking people in Iron Maidens and drowning witches in ponds, what did they do? For people who like their history bloody and gruesome, the truth is bound to disappoint. The job of an Inquisitor was to bring souls back to the church, avoiding punishments wherever possible. The title Inquisitor simply means examiner or inquirer, because an Inquisitor was tasked with finding the truth about alleged crimes against religion. These ranged from heresy to blasphemy to witchcraft, though, as we've seen, the Inquisition rarely dealt with that last one in practice. There isn't a modern equivalence, but you can think of an inquisitor as detective, judge, teacher, and priest rolled into one. He did carry a great deal of power, but also a great deal of responsibility. He had to follow strict legal procedures laid down by the Pope, all with the aim of reconciling heretics to full communion with the Church. Most of his work outside of courts consisted of preaching the gospel, hearing confessions, and instructing the faithful. In other words, the ordinary work of a traveling friar, which is why so many inquisitors came from the Franciscan and Dominican orders. Which brings us back, finally, to St. Peter of Verona. At the turn of the 13th century, Europe was a rapidly changing society. Western culture had emerged from the chaos and stagnation of the Dark Ages, as the early medieval era is often known, and entered a period we now call the High Middle Ages. This was a time of growth and vitality in just about every aspect of European life. The building of the great Gothic cathedrals and castles, the founding of the universities, the spread of chivalry, the Crusades, and the ideals of courtly love, 
the songs and romances of the troubadours, the revival of the arts and sciences, and so on, and so on. When you think of the best of medieval civilization, this is the age you have in mind. But all of this high culture was made possible by more mundane, if no less important, developments in the material world. A booming population, fed by advances in agriculture, the recovery of towns and commerce, and even the origins of modern banking. Just like today, this rapid economic growth made many people uncomfortable. The gap between the newly rich and the miserably poor was widening, and it was not always clear how the new world of profits and luxuries could be reconciled with the Christian faith. Many holy men and women took different views of the problem, with some, like St. Francis of Assisi, promoting lives of absolute poverty, and others, like St. Thomas Aquinas, perceiving that the new economy could be tamed and harnessed for Christian ends. Before you ask, don't worry. St. Francis and St. Thomas will definitely be getting their own episodes. But not all who tackled this issue were loyal sons and daughters of the church. Others were led to spurn not only the morality of wealth, but the authority of a church that possessed so much wealth of her own. And there's more. Some of these heterodox Christians became convinced that the whole material world was as worthless as the filthy lucre that lined the pockets of the rich. If you've listened to our third episode on St. Irenaeus, you may be able to guess where this is heading. The High Middle Ages saw a revival, for the first time in a millennium, of the heresy called Gnosticism. If you'd like a full explanation of that movement and its early history, go back and listen to episode 3. For now, all you need to know is that Gnostics are people who believe that God did not create the physical world. Instead, all matter, including the human body, was made by a demon equal in power to God, and the aim of Gnosticism is for the spirit to escape the prison of the flesh. It's a far cry from Christianity as we know it, the Christianity in which God himself entered his own creation and lived as one of us, but it's appeared again and again across the history of the church. In the High Middle Ages, Gnosticism spread to Europe from the east, likely brought by travelers from the Byzantine Empire, where the heresy was known as Paulicianism, through the Balkans, where it was known as Bogomilism, and finally into the west, where it found many followers among the mountains of southern France and northern Italy. Here, far removed from church authorities, the Gnostics flourished under the name of Cathars, meaning the pure ones, for their belief that they alone lived pure Christian lives, guided by a pure Christian faith. It's not obvious how pure their lives really were. Plenty of reports say, for example, that they lived lives of sexual depravity, on the grounds that they held the body in such low regard that it didn't matter what one did with it. 
On the other hand, you had Cathars who rejected sexuality as sinful, even within marriage, and tried to be ascetic in the extreme. Personally, I don't find either side of the story too hard to believe, or even too contradictory, strange as that sounds. Look at the world today, when Gnostic ideas about the separation of mind and body have become mainstream in attitudes to sex and gender. Hypocrisy is not exactly a recent invention, and the promiscuous Puritan is a type as old as time. By the start of the 13th century, the Cathar heresy had become so widespread that even rich and powerful people subscribed to it. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. The champagne socialist denouncing wealth from the top of a gilded tower has been with us for a long, long time. We don't know a lot about the parents of St. Peter of Verona, but given that they sent their son to university, we can guess that they weren't poor. They lived in the bustling town of Verona, in the foothills of the Italian Alps, and were most likely prosperous merchants or artisans in the growing urban economy. But whatever their status, they were Cathars. Born in 1206, Peter was exposed to the true faith when he was sent to an Orthodox grammar school and came to study theology for himself at the University of Bologna, the oldest university in Europe and one of the foremost centers of learning in the world at that time. It was there, at Bologna, that the 15-year-old Peter met one of the great saints of his age, St. Dominic, founder of the Dominican Order of Preachers. Called to the life of a traveling friar, Peter joined the Dominicans shortly thereafter and embarked on his mission to share the Orthodox Catholic faith with the people of northern Italy. Peter soon gained a reputation as an excellent preacher. His sermons drew enormous crowds, and he gained many devoted followers across the 1230s and 40s. From Bologna, to Florence, to Genoa, to Como, and even to Rome herself, Peter traveled to inspire the faithful. This was a big deal for the laity who got to hear him, not just because he was a great preacher, but because sermons were not a feature of weekly mass at this point in the Middle Ages. Most of the faithful rarely got to hear a preacher, let alone a good one. On top of his popularity with the people, Peter also rose within the ranks of the Dominican order, becoming prior of Asti, Piacenza, and Como in succession. Highly regarded by his brothers, as well as by the rest of the church, he drew the attention of the papacy as a valuable asset in the campaign against the Cathar heresy. In 1232, Pope Gregory IX appointed him General Inquisitor in northern Italy, and in 1251, Pope Innocent IV promoted him to the lofty office of Papal Inquisitor, granting him effectively universal jurisdiction to investigate heresy. It was in this capacity that Peter drew the attention of some powerful enemies. As I mentioned earlier, Catharism was not just a heresy of the poor and neglected. 
had found a place among the elite as a kind of fad in the High Middle Ages. So as Peter preached against the heresy, he provoked the hatred of wealthy and influential Cathars across northern Italy, who began to plot against him. We don't know exactly who was behind the conspiracy, except that a Milanese Cathar hired a hitman to kill Peter on the road from Como to Milan. On the 6th of April, 1252, the plot succeeded. As Peter was making his way along a remote mountain trail near the town of Barlacina, the assassins sprung out from the shadows and planted an axe in his skull. Falling to the ground, Peter began to recite the Apostles' Creed, and even managed to trace its first few words, Credo in Deum, in his own blood upon the earth, before losing consciousness. He was soon recovered, remarkably still clinging to life, and taken to the nearby town of Maida, where he died five days later. Peter was instantly recognized across the Catholic world as a martyr, a rare honor in an age when most of Europe was firmly in Christian hands. Pope Innocent IV had such reverence for him that he immediately launched the inquiries for Peter's canonization. By the 9th of March, 1253, less than a year after his death, the investigation had learned all it needed to know, and Peter was formally declared a saint, the shortest canonization in history. He is now widely known as Saint Peter Martyr. There is a beautiful postscript to this tale. Shortly after slaying Peter, the assassin repented of his crime. Fleeing to the Dominican priory at Forli, the killer confessed his sins to one of the brothers living there, a mystic named Blessed Giacomo Salamone. The assassin's name was Carino Balsamo, known today as Blessed Carino by the Church. He would go on to become a Dominican lay brother for the rest of his earthly days and would be venerated as a holy man after his death. The assassination of St. Peter of Verona would become a popular subject for artists in the centuries to come, attracting Renaissance masters like Titian, Bellini, and Vasari. As his cult grew and spread beyond northern Italy, Peter came to be seen as a patron of many causes, not only the region of Lombardy, but the wider Dominican order, and the Inquisition itself. Today, he is commemorated on the 29th of April in the Catholic Church, while his assassin, Blessed Carino, is honored on the previous day. If you'd like to learn more about these two remarkable men, or the broader history of the Inquisition that I covered earlier in this episode, then I've included links in the show notes. May St. Peter Martyr of Verona.
and his brother in heaven, Blessed Carino of Balsamo, come to our aid now and always, for the greater glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and God bless.